0: Well, I'm very excited to introduce our guest preacher today, Dr. Richard Horner. There's a little bit of his bio that's written in your uh, insert of your bulletin. Uh, Richard is a good friend. He and his wife, April, who are with him, have been uh, supporting us and encouraging us as a parish since our beginning. They came to Gainesville in 2001. We came in 2002. So it feels as if we're journeying together, and they are definitely partners in ministry. They are one of our strategic partners. Ministry partnerships, meaning that we give financially to the Christian Studies Center. And you can find out more information under the video screen in the Narthex. There's information about the Christian Studies Center. Tony Ladd, one of our members, has served on the board for Christian Studies Center. And it's a privilege to invite Richard now to come and share God's word with us. So please make him feel welcome. Thank you. It is always good to be with you. This is one of our homes away from home for April and me. Uh, We love worshiping with you and joining in this wonderful historic liturgy, gathering around the scriptures and our Lord's table. Um, This is a wonderful fellowship. And uh, Jody and Alex, yes, have become dear friends as well over these uh, 18 years or so that we've been in town together. I am the director of the Christian Study Center. Some of you know the Study Center well. For some of you, it's perhaps completely new. We're down on 16th Street, just a block north of the campus, and uh, we offer various classes, reading groups, lectures, (coughs) excuse me, and uh, we also host a coffee house. Most people know us by our coffee house. The coffee house is Pascal's Coffee. It's become one of the places to be in town actually, and we're delighted that it's the expression of Christian hospitality that it is. Uh, We are at a very uh, exciting moment in our history right now. We are conducting a search for an associate director for educational programming, which is a big step for us. It'll be a major move in several ways, and we're delighted to be well along in that process. We will actually have a couple of candidates visiting in a couple of weeks. There will be public lectures, we invite you to come. Uh, People don't realize that when they are public lectures, they are actually for you. Uh, So please make your way on down on Thursday evening, the 28th of this month, Monday evening, the 1st of April, we'll have those talks. Um, But we're very pleased to see what God is doing and what he has done through um, our, our history as a center now. One of the things that's fun to do when I get a chance to be with brothers and sisters this way on a Sunday morning particularly, is to give you some little glimpse, little look inside what we do at the study center in a way that also fits together with what we're here to do this morning. I teach a class on Wednesdays. We have it during period five and that's lunchtime. We are glad to draw students in with a little bit of free lunch but we're excited that they come not just for the lunch but for an engaging time together. We go back and forth between classes that are oriented toward biblical studies and classes that deal with contemporary culture or with resources from the Christian intellectual tradition. This semester we're doing a class in which you're answering the question, what is a Christian understanding of human experience? For years, I've been using the phrase, Christian understanding of human experience, as if everyone is supposed to know what I mean when I use that phrase. It finally caught up with me that I'm not sure why anybody should have a clue what I'm talking about when I use that phrase, and then I had to say to myself, so do you know what you mean when you use that phrase? So I I have done what teachers do. I created a class in which some students and I get to answer this question together. What is a Christian biblical understanding of human experience? So far, we've had a hard time getting beyond the first three chapters of Genesis. Those chapters are so rich in helping us gain a sense for who we are as human beings, a sense for the intentions of our creator for how he made us. There's, of course, all sorts of controversy about these passages and how to read them. There are all sorts of challenges, I suppose. Um, There are, in fact, several creation accounts, I think, in Scripture. Um, There's the two we know best in the first chapter of Genesis through the third verse of chapter two. A second account begins with verse four in chapter two and runs through the end of that chapter. And then there are a couple of accounts that we often don't quite catch. One is in the 38th chapter, of the book of Job. I encourage you to take a few moments to look at it sometime. And then one that few people recognize is Psalm 104. Four different biblical accounts reflecting on the work of God in creation. And I encourage you as I encourage my students to do the best you can at taking these texts on their own terms. It's hard to know exactly what those terms are in a couple of these cases, but it's good at least to do our best to understand them. They are not scientific accounts. They don't mean to be. I'm not sure what it would mean to try to make them scientific accounts. I encourage my students to let science answer questions that are scientific questions. But that doesn't mean that we don't look seriously then at these texts. Quite to the contrary, we look all the more seriously at them. We read them all the more carefully. Convinced that it's texts like these more than any other source of knowledge that will give us our most fundamental profound understanding of who we are. My word about the biblical text with the students is always, not to take it less seriously, but more seriously, and to read it more carefully, not less carefully. In the first couple chapters of Genesis, we have seen this wonderful theme that we are made in the image and likeness of God. Let us make man in our image, God says, according to our likeness. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. As we've reflected on what it, would be, what it means to be made in the image of God, two things have particularly struck our attention. One is that we are relational beings. Just based on these opening two chapters, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? First, that we are relational beings. There is this wonderful fundamental diversity among humans, male and female, and it is in that union of male and female that the image of God is expressed in individuals, but also in that union. God is a Trinitarian God. He is relational within His own being, and He seeks relationship with us. We are meant for relationships. We are meant for community. We are meant to get outside of ourselves and to love our neighbors. When we retreat into isolation, when we retreat into self-centeredness, we miss out on one of the fundamental ways God has meant for us to be, to love our neighbors, to be God's means of loving one another. The second aspect is that we are made in the creative image of God. If there's a single aspect of God's character that's most clear in the first chapter, it is that God is a creator. We get caught up in controversy, we get caught up in this, we miss the obvious. (laughs) Who is God in chapter 1? He's a creator. He's imaginative. He's a maker, a doer. He's active. He knows how to lean into a project and then enjoy the fruits of his labors. It's a wonderful picture of God. And and so we find out then we are not simply created in God's image. We are creative in God's image. When you enter into the works of imagination, whatever form they might take, whether artistic or in technology or in in making a home, wherever the creativity expresses itself, you're entering into something that's fundamental to who you are as made in the image of God. And as we enter into that creative work, we recognize then that we are God's means for caring for the world that He has created. Verse 28 of chapter 1 calls us to care for the earth. Verse 26 calls us to care for all of the animals. Chapter 2, verse 15, God gives us the work of farming and all that goes along with food production from garden to table, all that comes with serving and keeping the land that serves and keeps us. God gives Adam the privilege of naming the animals, what I would take as an affirmation of scientific inquiry. And then the sheer brilliant creativity of God in these verses affirms and establishes the arts and every sort of imagination and creativity. God calls us to care for the creation that he has made. We are his means of loving and caring for what he has done. We are given to each other to care for each other. We are given to the coming generations to care for them. Well, we finally made our way to Genesis chapter 3, but instead of jumping right into the story of the temptation and the fall and the consequences of sin, I asked the students a different sort of a question about chapter 3. You heard the beginning of it today. My question for the students was, Let's not talk yet about temptation or sin or fall or consequences. What does this chapter teach us about God's intention for us as human? What does this chapter teach us about how we can understand ourselves? I encourage you to spend some time doing that yourself. The students did well with it. They reflected on this picture of God coming in the garden and of Adam and Eve in this garden, on the goodness of the garden itself, the goodness of the natural world in which Adam and Eve find themselves in this story. They understand that God means us to enjoy this beautiful, rich, wonderful, natural world that he has made, that there is a harmony between us and all of nature, that there is a delight in garden and gardening and caring and keeping. keeping. They saw that Adam and Eve were meant for each other and to serve one another. They recognized the goodness of being innocent with regard to evil. (laughs) Being unashamed, open, transparent, with no need to hide. They recognize that limits are a good thing that the body itself functions as a limit. There is an affirmation of materiality, of physicality of our being. And that even in this perfect world of Eden, there is a thou shalt not. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? An appropriate line between the creator and the creation. A limit as a good, protective, right and reasonable thing. As we talked, however, a cluster kind of emerged in their observations, and it emerged around the relationship that we are meant to have with God. It emerged around the idea that God is to be trusted and enjoyed, that he loves us and seeks our love in return. That his word is to be central and to be trusted, that we are let His Word framed the way we think instead of framing His Word in the way we tend to think. We saw that we are meant to know and enjoy God, meant to have an open, relaxed relationship with God, conversational, easygoing, with no reason to hide from Him or from each other or to blame each other. What a wonderful picture it is in chapter 3 of God coming to Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the evening as if this is the sort of thing we can do we do we enjoy each other this way Adam where are you this evening where are you this evening we are meant for that kind of relationship with God we are made to receive his love and to love him in return. From the beginning, this has been God's desire and intention. From the beginning, God has wanted to love you and be loved in return. He wants you to enjoy him as he enjoys you, to have a relaxed conversational friendship with your maker to walk in the garden in the cool of the evening in the manner that this passage suggests. Isn't that a wonderful picture? I write letters occasionally to folks like many of you and others to sort of give you a little look into the center and the formula of course is I'm supposed to include a paragraph with something from a a student or a faculty member or someone who's been impacted by our work. I don't make light of that. We're glad to be able to do that. But I will tell you, you know whose paragraph I'd put in if I were to write one right now? The executive director has been impacted by the work of the study center. (laughs) There is nobody in my classroom right now who has been hit by this picture more forcefully than I have. It has changed the way I get up out of bed in the morning and what I do with the beginning of my day and how I think through the day. This picture of God's enduring intention and desire for us to have this kind of relationship has captured me. And I have realized that this is what Christ came to restore. This is what Christ came to make possible again, perhaps not in a pristine garden of innocence, but in this world, gardens or deserts to make real again, to create peace with God. And I have realized that the, that the limitation on that, that what messes it up is my choice to look away. It's my choice to give in to temptations and distractions that keep me from the God who loves me. Not, not so much temptations to do some obviously awful, sinful thing but just simple distractions to the constant busyness of life, to boredom, to constant screens and little devices that beep and ding and buzz, to self-absorption, to the noise of our noisy world, to idols that want to take a place that only God should have in my life. In our readings this morning, we had two wonderful passages that not surprisingly capture just what we're talking about now. Psalm 27 is just beautiful, isn't it? Here is a person, the psalmist David, who understands that God wants to come in the garden as it were saying, where are you, David? And saying, seek my face, (laughs) seek my face. So that David can say in return, my heart says to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Here is a psalmist in all his own brokenness given up to God. It's not a lovely garden. It's a desert. It's a wilderness. It's full of thorns and thistles of evildoers, adversaries, and foes. But one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord, the garden of his house, if you will, all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. I will sing and make melody of the Lord. And then there's this verse, verse 8. Listen to the resonance, listen to the way it lines up alongside God's voice in Genesis 3. The psalmist says to God, You have said, Seek my face. That's God coming in the garden, isn't it? Where are you? Seek my face. David knows it's still true. And so he says, my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. And so he writes with hope, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Even in this wilderness of a world, I will know that this is God's intention, that he loved me and that I receive his love and love him in return. And so he encourages you and me this morning, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage and wait for the Lord. Why? Because the God who is our Lord and invites us to his table this morning is the same God whom we meet in the Garden of Eden. And he is the same God who pours out his heart in Luke chapter 13 Whereas we heard this morning, Jesus looks to the city of Jerusalem and says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings? Do you hear again the voice of our Lord God who longs for you? (laughs) Isn't that amazing? He longs for you. He loves you. He comes to you now as he comes to Adam and Eve. Where are you? I just want to love you. Will you please let me love you? Humble yourself. Acknowledge your brokenness. Seek forgiveness and find it. Oh, how I encourage you this morning understand that this is the God we worship. This is the God who brings us to this table this morning. Take a moment. Find a garden in all seriousness. Find some place where it is just that natural realm where maybe other noises are out and you can simply know the presence of God. Take a moment in your own home, perhaps in a place of work, and stop. Reflect. Know again that your God loves you. Fight the temptations. Flee the distractions. Enjoy the undisturbed presence of God for which He created you. Enjoy Him, knowing that you can do that because Jesus Christ has come and died and been raised again. Capture those moments of clarity in the garden so that when you walk back out into the weeds, into the thorns and thistles, into the places of wilderness, amidst the worries of life, the challenges of family, of friendships, of work, of this troubled world, you can step out knowing the love of God, open to it. You can remember the words of our Savior, Jesus, who longs to gather you under his wings. (laughs) And you can be encouraged by the words of the psalmist and join him in singing and making melody to the Lord, knowing that it is God who has said, seek my face. And so in your heart you can say, your face, Lord, do I seek. Almighty God, how thankful we are that your voice is spoken again this morning, that your word continues to testify to who you are in your unchanging nature, holy, magnificent beyond our imagination. It's, it's wild that we would be able to talk about you as we are doing this morning. And to know that you are the one who wants us just to receive your love to die and give ourselves up to receive this wonderful love of God. And now we come to this table where, again, it is clearer than ever that you love us, that you will go to whatever extent you need to go to, that we might know your love, that you might be reconciled to us and us to you and that we might seek your face and find it. So we do come with thankful hearts in and through Jesus our Lord. Amen.